Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, this is the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, Bestie. You look amazing today. I hope you're having an amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button and join us as we elevate ethics and compliance to the strategic lever it's supposed to be. I'm here with the man, Michael Duran, Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer for 3M. So happy to have you on, Michael. How's it going? Oh, it's great. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, too. So um, you came on my radar because you run a great big company. Um, you have a lot of challenges that a lot of our listeners probably face, and you've probably had to learn to adapt to those challenges uh, in some really interesting ways, especially during the pandemic. Um, before we kind of get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, how you got to the seat that you're in. Great. Thank you. Um, I've been in the compliance field for about 19 years. Uh, my journey started out, I would say the journey has not been linear. I have a law degree from the University of Illinois. I practiced law and moved to Nevada to clerk for a judge. Then I, um, I moved into the public sector with a staff attorney. I was a little frustrated at that moment in my career. So I decided to go back and get an MBA at Indiana University. I got a scholarship to go back to school. And then I worked for General Electric in the area of finance. Um, and during, my, during one of my roles I had within GE, I uh, moved to take a finance role a finance manager role for one of their capital businesses. Two weeks after I started allegation of internal fraud, they had me investigate it. Spent a month doing it and we were able to substantiate it. Three months later, another allegation of a fraud in an office we had in Colorado. Spent a month out there, same thing. Three months later, we bought a company in Macon, Georgia, and they asked me to go look into that. Things didn't look right. After that investigation, I talked with our chief compliance officer and I said, you know what, I've been spending more time with you than what I was got hired to do. We both saw it as a natural fit for me to to basically move into compliance, and as I mentioned, I've been it's been 19 years since that, and I've been doing it ever since. And I do find the field uh, it's a nat it, it brings a lot of things for me, which are where my natural strengths are. So I have the law. I also have a a lot of it is around understanding numbers, the finance type of stuff as well too, um, and I just really enjoy and love what I do. So and I've been I spent GE doing I spent you know, some time at GE uh, in compliance. Then I went to Marsh McCullen in New York City. They were going through a compliance crisis. They had hired Scott Gilbert, GE's former chief compliance officer. He hired my manager. A year later, I came over to help build and enhance their compliance program. And then I came to 3M 10 years ago to help build and enhance compliance program as well too. So I love what I do. I've been in my current role as the chief compliance officer for about uh, three years. It's a three year anniversary this month. Wow. Um, very interesting background. Um, were you in Bloomington? I was. Spent wow. two years in Bloomington with the Kelly School. Very cool. I um, that's that's where I went for uh, for undergrad. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, great campus. Great campus. Um, so idyllic, and uh, I really lucked out that I was uh, living in Indiana uh, at that time to have such a great um, great college. You know. Far enough away from home, but it didn't, you know, I didn't have to fly. So um, very interesting path indeed that you took into compliance. So you were doing, um, you know, you got your law degree. What was it about the, like what you, you mentioned you were kind of frustrated and that's what maybe prompted you to start looking at an MBA. What was it about law that wasn't like feeding you at that time? Well, at the time I had clerked for a judge and I loved what I had did and I had a great judge to work for. I was living in Nevada at the time. And then um, it was a struggle to find a job as my clerkship was ending. So I took one with the state legislature. 
I learned a lot. It was a good experience and all. But really, at that time, I wanted to be a be a prosecutor. I felt that, that would have been something. It just attracted me for a variety of different reasons. I had, a, had a, I applied a couple times. I applied for some local firms and things weren't, I just wasn't getting any traction. So at the time I decided to apply for, a, there was a scholarship to go get an MBA. Mm-hmm. Indiana at the time, it still does, has a great reputation for the MBA program. I received the scholarship. The funny thing thing is I, the funny thing is I did get the uh, job I always wanted. I was got the job to be a prosecutor in Washoe County, which is where Reno is. And uh, I, I came to a point where I had a decision to make. Do I continue doing this or do I continue doing the job I always wanted in the law at the time? Or do I go pursue an MBA? And my judge, I consider her a mentor and I spoke with her and she just says, you know what, Michael, you know what, it's a great opportunity you have here and I know you'll do really well. But the other thing is you'll never get getting more education. And that's what I decided to do. And I consider the education I've had has really been foundational and helped shape me. So I have no regrets at all. It's been a wonderful journey I've been on and I've learned something new in every role I've taken. So that's, that's what had happened. I was a bit impatient, you could say, young at the time, but um, I look at it as it's opened up so many doors and opportunities for me, the education. Well, and it's such an interesting skill set that you have, right? I mean, you obviously had the sort of legal chops to get that opportunity um, to be a litigator opened up for you. I mean, to be to do that clerkship, that also takes, obviously, you know, they're not like scraping the bottom of the barrel for that kind of a person. Um, and what I've always found so interesting, at least in my own life, is like when you're going through it, it none of it makes sense. And then sometimes you can look back and you'll be like, oh, look at that fork in the road. Like how lucky to have that judge, that mentor in place to give you that advice because, I mean, you have your dream job on the one hand, this one thing that's so close that uh, probably for a long time you're thinking like, man, if I could just, if I could just, then everything, you know, how we have that like fallacy that we always think. Uh, How cool that you were able to kind of take that other less traveled path perhaps and, um, you know, move out of the the desert into uh, southern Indiana to, you know, pursue the MBA. No, I feel very fortunate. And I, as I mentioned too, I consider the judge I used to work for, it was uh, among one of the best advice I'd ever received. And I can, and I give the same advice to other people. I don't think you can ever regret getting more education, but with an important lesson learned I have. And just by way of background too, as well, I'm a Midwesterner. I wasn't born there, but I consider myself a Chicagoan. And for some reason, I seem to always return to the Midwest as well too. I've li- I've been very transient but I seem to somehow end up in the Midwest. I could return to the Midwest in some way. How has that Midwestern foundation served you well as you've been transient all over the place in these different sort of diverse roles in these massive companies and in these, you know, different parts of the country? Yeah. You know, I think, um, I, I, I enjoy working with massive companies mentioned GE, uh, 3M. My very first job out of undergrad was with Merrill Lynch at the time in Chicago. I enjoy a large, big corporate company. I find I like the structure. You could say sometimes they're a bit bureaucratic, but I enjoy the opportunities you have in a large company. I think in terms of you know a Midwestern person, I would say, you know, I've lived in New York. My wife is actually a New Yorker as well too. But I think we're just, you know, I don't want to characterize people, but I just consider I have a very authentic style, very humble, and um, that served me well as well too. Interesting. So when a finance focus in your, your MBA. And I think you also mentioned that you worked at Merrill Lynch. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you went from Merrill Lynch to law school and what was it about finance that drew you kind of back to it? Yeah, I have an undergrad from DePaul University in finance. 
Uh, for me, I have a natural inclination to, I would call it the numbers. It just mm -hmm. comes very naturally to me. I think very, it, it just very easy for me to process numbers, calculate things in my head, things like that. Um, after getting done with undergrad, I always had, you could say my, my initial dream was to go to law school, mm -hmm. but I needed to save up some money. So I came out uh, after graduating from undergrad, I worked for Merrill Lynch. They had a division which published a reference book on mergers and acquisitions. And I worked in the research department Cool. and I did that for two years. I enjoyed that experience and I learned a lot. And then I was able to then, um, you know, I applied to a number of law schools, very fortunate to get into University of Illinois, a really nice institution. It was in state. So again, very reasonable from a cost perspective at that time as well, too. And, you know, and again, another wonderful experience uh, met, I would just say some of the most intelligent people I've ever met, made some lifelong friends out of it as well, too. Um, I, and I, you know, going to law school, it just trains you to think in a different manner. And I think it's always been a very, very valuable experience for me as well. Even when I did leave the law to go get another, you know, the advanced degree in finance, um, it still has always served totally. me well and it changed the way I think about things as well. Yeah, I would, I'd love to hear more about that. Because um, some of those, you know, you're in class, I'd imagine, with people who don't know anything about finance. You already know about finance. And then you probably had a bunch of these sort of legal frameworks that you were seeing sort of the implications of popping up in that coursework. Talk to us a little bit about how that, you know, that way that you were sort of taught to think in law school helped you probably accelerate forward in the MBA program and give you maybe a different perspective than some of your classmates had. Yeah, you know, I think, um, yeah, you, you constantly are looking at and analyzing, I would say, situations and problems, and you're trying to identify, you know, you could say almost a bit of issue spotting. I think the big difference between law school and an MBA is an MBA is a lot of it is around teamwork and team building. And especially at that time, they put us in cohorts and you put you're right. on with a team and you're trying to work together. So it was a, it was a little bit different from that respect. But um, so you're learning collaboration, which is important and critical nowadays, in my current job. But I think it's like the, the whole process of how you you're reading and you're analyzing a situation and then you're looking for either what are the right questions to ask or what are the, um, you know, what are the issues you're looking to find? Um, it's just such a powerful combination, the MBA, JD. I mean, you know, if you're going to be a doctor, that's phenomenal. If you're a doctor and a lawyer, that's superpower. Or if you're a doctor and an MBA, that's a superpower just because you have these like different, these different lenses that you can look at problems through, you know? I, yeah, no, I found them very complimentary because a lot of the things I'll have to deal with is, um, I, because I have a natural inclination to data and numbers, things like that, a lot of things I'm able to leverage the data and try to put it and present it in a fashion that can help influence people. And I always like to say in our department, we sit on an amount of data. How do we utilize that data to influence behavior, to understand risk and to help prioritize our time? So I find it's, um, it's something I enjoy doing myself and uh, it's just something that comes natural to me as well too. Well, that brings me to um, something I really wanted to dive into. And I thought, you know, as I as you're talking, I'm thinking I really want to get to this point, And that is this whole data thing. Um, I talk to a ton of people in positions like yours, many of them, very, very few of them. I can even think of any that also have this sort of finance background and kind of a recurring theme just to kind of stereotype or paint with a broad brush is like a lot of people end up going to law school because they like hate numbers. They're like, I don't want to do that stuff. I want to do this stuff. And yet now we find ourselves in a time where there's so many tools. 
everything is measured in something. There's these data ponds all over the place. And a big um, challenge I hear people run into is like they need a, a data analyst on their team. Talk to, let's kind of dive into that thing that you just alluded to, which is you kind of have a penchant for this type of analysis. And it seems like that, you know, it's kind of well-timed as this sort of massive wave of data over the last 20 years has sort of crashed across our compliance company or our compliance programs and just companies in general. Yeah, I, uh, I am a big proponent of data. I don't, I, um, I, I really dislike when people will use anecdotes. We think we're seeing this, or this is what I'm observing. For me, everything is measurable. So I like to bring it back to what we can measure and how do we measure it? So I have that, that's my foundation. And, uh, I'm very fortunate now at this team too, because uh, with my team, because uh, I've organized our department around certain either how we operationalize it around the world. And then I have pillars of global activity that happens as one. One I call risk monitoring. The person I have there that leads that pillar has a finance background. We have a data scientist works with them. We do compliance, what I call compliance audits, but then we do a lot of publishing of metrics and reports. Um, and it's measurement of people. I find the easiest way to influence behavior, especially with business folks, is to compare them against their peers and give them a target. Um, so, I mean, we're a relatively small department and we have 95,000 employees at 3M. So how do we influence people that don't report to us? I'll say 3Mers are very competitive. Nobody wants to be below the bar, be yellow or whatever you want to categorize them. So if you give them a target, say this is what we're measuring, people work to be above and exceed where their peers are. So we, as I mentioned, I think we, I feel very fortunate the way we've been able to build up our program is we do have access to quite a bit of data. And now it's just how do we leverage that data and uh, interpret it then too. Wow, I'm, my mind is kind of reeling because, you know, I've kind of, I'm talking to a bit of a unicorn here. Um, this is like the number one thing that I think people struggle with. How do we actually influence behavior to drive a culture forward? A culture is this sort of conglomeration of all these different behaviors. Well, if we want to change those behaviors, there's a couple of different like levers we can pull. Some, some are informational, some, some are internal accountability, some are external uh, accountabilities and so forth. But it sounds like you've in some way, you know, as you've analyzed these data, you've, you've been able to pull out certain conclusions and then set um, kind of KPIs or smart goals for folks in different areas. I'd love to kind of nerd out and dive a little bit deeper in that. I have a CPA background. I find sure. the biggest, um, I think that like this is such a critical lever for our, you know, our people listening to this to like wrap their head around or figure out some way to like gain some, some of the benefits of. And if we can get like a little tactical here about how you've been able to do that, what kind of conclusions you've been able to draw and how you've maybe tied those across a risk assessment to drive like appropriate, you know, behavior change in different jurisdictions or something. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with some pretty simple, two simple examples of how we've been able to leverage data. Um, at 3M, we have five cultural elements. One of them we call it as act with unwavering integrity. So it's good. You come in the door, this is part of the foundation of learning you get is here's our cultures. One of them is this. One of the simple things I consider just foundational is uh, we have an online training program and it, it starts, it goes very broad and it's, we try to, what I always say is we give the baseline foundational that most of the employees must know. And that's the way we, and we organize it and we do it uh, every year. We do a sort of a risk assessment, what we think makes sense. We don't give a ton every quarter. I've got one specific course that's going off and we're gonna build things around it as well too for the communication plan. But what I'm looking for and what I'm measuring all of our leaders on is I want on-time completion because that means there's only one course you're getting this quarter 
you could say at the most, it'll be 30 minutes and we measure how long it is at the most. And you have to get it done on time. That means you're gonna prioritize it and you'll get it done. And we only give you 30 days once it's deployed. I don't care if you complete it after I'm measuring whether you get it done on time. We set a 98% target. And I would say we've been doing this now for about three and a half years or so. And it's been a journey where we had some that were below, but I report out and I share with all of our leaders, here's how you fare against your different peers. Smart. And then here's how your, your groups fare like across the world, things like that. So you can see how competitive they get. And some of them will get out there reminding their employees to do it. At this point, we are at a, um, it's, it, it's at a remarkable level. We're at basically last year we finished at, and I look at it, I don't look at each individual course. I look at a rolling consistency over the year. Where did you land for the year? Got you. Last year we were at 99.4%. That's comparable <laughs> to three employees out of 500 did not complete their course on time. That's wild. Now, so it's just the basics. Are you going to take your course, get that baseline information? Are you going to do it on time? Are you making it a priority for that one, for that quarter I'm doing it? The other thing we've done to try to look out and ferret it out too, is we do a culture survey every year. It targets, I'll call it sales and marketing employees, but it's a compliance culture survey. So it's got about 50 questions. Out of those questions, we're able to correlate other ones with it. One of the ones that we've used that I find very valuable and influential is it asks, how frequently does your manager talk about compliance? Mm. And we, the responses are pretty simple. It's like frequently is like once a month, you know, sometimes it's once a quarter. Uh, there's another one that's once every other, every six months. And the other one is never, rare, ever. We were able to correlate with other responses. What you can really see is how powerful is those that talk frequently, which is taking a topic about compliance, talking about it once a month is a huge influence on their, on their employees. It really does show the importance of tone at the top. And then it, it shows the, just the importance of the role model a leader plays. Just a good example is those, those managers which speak frequently about it, 99% of their employees consider them a role model. If I go to rarely, it's less than 50%. And then if I go those matter, those managers that talk frequently about it, their employees are 25% more likely to report a concern as opposed to other managers. So it just, you create that culture, that create that environment. And I think a lot of managers don't realize the, the, the influence they have over their, their employees. So we try to use this data and share it with managers to say, hey, this is what a big influence you have. Currently, right now, we've got you know, a certain percentage that do talk about it. And we try to give them the tools to talk about it as well, too. So that's, it's just a, so we try to use data in that fashion to take it in an influence behavior. This is like, so next level, everything you're talking about is so unbelievably next level. It's like, uh, everyone's fighting with a pool noodle and you have like a broadsword because these correlations are critical and you have evidence of the actual influence to your point that, that these leaders are having on folks and you can tie it back down to, you know, the extent to which they're talking about ethics and culture or ethics and compliance and stuff like that. Um, it's such a self-feeding system, right? Like anyone who's a leader, they want to be a better leader. They want the people that they're, <laughs> that are entrusted to them to do the things that they're supposed to do and do the things that they want them to do. Um, and for so long, we've thought that, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's hundreds of books about, you know, how we drive behavior, what, what incentives people respond to and so forth. But like that role model thing is such an unspoken one, at least historically, 
that people don't really, I, I think, I mean, again, there's hundreds of books about how do you be that person? What an easy way to not only give them the tools to be successful, but also what an easy way to reinforce like adherence to your program. You know what I'm saying? So many people are struggling. They feel like they're in the back office. They feel like they're a, a cost center and they feel like they can't effectuate any change in, the, in their, their organization. No, I, I, I agree. I think it's just, the, it's the power of data. When you start taking these types of surveys, I'm pleased because I get the support that people allow me to take a survey. Sometimes we hear about companies are surveyed out, employees don't want to take any more surveys, but I feel very fortunate we've been able to do this now and it's become almost just part of the process where annually we're going to do this survey so we can get this information and it does have power for us as well too. So, and I, I think like you mentioned, it's an easy tool for employees uh, to consider and then what our job really is, is to help them, to give them the tools to do this as well. And it, it, it's funny, you you see the influence that a manager has that uh, by talking about compliance, and then the opposite side are the case studies where you see somebody that was a poor role model, set the wrong tone in the impact it did have in terms of the rest of their team as well too. So you got the, the dichotomy then too, because we'll yeah. sometimes do case studies out of investigations. Well, and that's it, what you as well. to your point, you can prove it on both sides and that gives you a higher yeah. confidence interval around the conclusion that you've drawn, you know? Um, so, um, talk to me about like, let's back up a little bit. So, sure. um, I think we should circle back to this whole data thing, but you come out of MBA school, you go to GE, I presume it was in the Welsh years. Yep. Okay. So, uh, and I would presume also that you gathered a lot of like, you know, they said during that time, I think that what GE was really in the business of was producing great managers because you have this diverse conglomerate, right? And there was a consistency across these different business units that made it extremely scalable. And, you know, that was a high, you know, that's a high pedigree to have that on your, your resume anyway you want to cut it. As you think back to your GE days, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned coming out of there that you still carry forward today, either day to day as you're sort of, you know, apexing your program or even in the early days at 3M of starting to build that foundation? Yeah. No, I, I consider GE very, uh, a very, uh, a huge impact in my career. And then again, my mindset as well. I did join GE. I started in appliances in a finance role. I spent two years there and then I joined what they call their corporate audit staff, which is like an accelerator program. Uh, you, you basically, you go to different audits of business throughout the world. So I got a great exposure to the 3M businesses and the different models, globally, cultures, things like if you get an immersive experience. And I think that's what GE does provide. It's mm -hmm. a little bit similar to 3M in terms of we've got a conglomerate, different types of businesses, global presence. Um, but I think you really do, you learn quite a bit. One of the things I think that GE was really good about is, you know, it's not only developing managers by putting them in different situations and experiences, but uh, a huge focus on process. At the time, you were, I was there between Welch and then the handover to uh, Jeff ML. Mm -hmm. But they also were one of the companies to pioneer Six Sigma, mm -hmm. which is just a, a, a huge focus on process and bringing process efficiencies. And that's, a, that's what I constantly think about is how can I make our processes more efficient? How can we simplify things, automate things, reduce our costs? So that was, I would say, pretty foundational for me is just I am constantly thinking about ways that we can, you know, improve the processes, reduce the impact on the, you know, on our workforce for our compliance processes as well. 
how do you think, so let's back up. A bunch of people complain that their organization, their leadership, their board looks at ethics and compliance as a necessary evil, as people who don't get it. How has your, I mean, you have a, obviously a deep foundation, you know, a foundational business sense as you've been in this sort of, when, when, when you were in that corporate audit role, was that like process audits or was it like financial audits or were you just auditing all kinds of like adherence to policies? Like what were you actually looking at? It was financial audits. Okay. So again, so that you're swimming in data, you're understanding how all these activities translate to a P&L, which is what's going to obviously translate to a stock price and so forth. You know, and maybe I'm talking to a, uh, you know, a gold medalist skier and I'm talking about, well, if you could go back to the bunny slopes, how would you make pizzas easier? But like, how have you seen as you talk to, uh, you know, as you've come into 3M and you've built this program, what I, what sounds like from like a somewhat nascent state, how have you seen your sort of dexterity with some of these concepts that some of your peers struggle with allow you to get more done? Um, yeah, I've been with 3M for 10 years. Uh, we have, I would say number one is you get, we have a uh, good support from leadership here. So okay. I mean, you, you start with the, the foundation is that you need to have some support, but then everything we do, there's a, I would say a bit of a, there's the business justification around it. So a lot of us for our, a lot of the risk I focus on is, is you know, we talk about the employees building a culture. So I've got 95,000 3 employees. We're trying to uh, influence to make sure they do the right thing. The other bigger risk for me really is, is the, the different parties that represent as third parties. Uh, so, so for that, that's a huge risk for me because I don't get to touch them every day and send them messages and require them to do training. So we've done a lot of work around how we influence our third parties and how we vet them and how we ensure that we're working with the right people. Um, you know, so I, I, like everything else, I think it's, it's all a justification on, you know, what's the benefit you'll get out of this. So for us, it's trying to, you know, you're a cost center, but then you're also trying to show well, there is value in what we do. Again, we track a lot of different things. We go through a process we call integrity assessments with our third parties. There are, um, they all get risk ranked. They go through, through a certain questionnaire. We do due diligence. We do, but if something raises a red flag, not everybody gets approved. Mm -hmm. So we try to track what percentage do we not approve on a quarterly basis. So then, you know, it's not really a, this process does work because not everybody goes through and we stamp and say, yep, we'll work with you. Yeah. Just so that's by, just another example. Yeah. So just by the nature of having some that get sort of kicked out of the process is proof that the process is working at least to some degree. And then you can start to dial yep. that in and so forth. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of a kind of six Sigma concept. And I guess at some level, you know, which is just continuous improvement, incremental improvement of a process and trying to continue to like hone it down. That's a, that is a great one. Um, we started out this journey 10 years ago where it was a paper process. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to technology called Lotus Notes and then to try to automate it. We've used vendors throughout to help us because a lot of vendors offer solutions. And then we moved and we built our own internal workflow. The nice thing is our vendors offer workflows. We decided to stay on our own, but utilize them to do due diligence reports for us. Mm. And uh, by doing that means we sit on all this mound of data we get related to our third parties. So we're able to capture a bunch of information. We don't have to rely on a vendor to get data out of their system that right. sort of limits how they configured it. But so we've been able to also we can switch out vendors as well easily. Mm -hmm. But I think there has been a journey. And now what we've done is we've integrated our it was basically a separate workflow tool we'd send everybody to to go fill it out. 
we've now integrated it to more of the customer onboarding system. So now it's more simplified. People don't have to swivel seats and put information on one system than doing a my system. Got it. It's been further simplified. Smart. So you can see we've continued to work to, you know, improve the move from paper, automate it, you know, and continue to do the improvement and now integrate it within a, a one, one customer, you know, one employee experience type of tool. So cool. So interesting. So many like broad reaching implications. I just, um, I love this game that we're in the ethics and compliance game. I find it so interesting. It's definitely not one dimensional at all. Um, it's this, it's this crashing together of, you know, organizational psychology and human behavior and like finance and numbers and data and all these different things. And we're at such an interesting kind of inflection point as we really move away from this industrial economy that we've been in for the last 120 years or something to this new knowledge work economy where we are our work. This is something I harp on a lot. Well, the opportunity really presents itself for folks like you to really make our workplaces better by influence beha behavior in a, um, in a consistent way, in a consistent and a meaningful way. And I think as you've, you know, this is one of the most exciting conversations I've had on, you know, we've done 150 episodes of this thing um, because it's such a, uh, you're really using data, it feels like, to, um, to such a greater degree than like the average person in your seat. Well, uh, I mean, we see a lot of opportunity. I mean, I, I think we should be doing more in our third party space. We do some already, but we want to, that's the space where we see is the big opportunity to continue doing more as well. So let's, uh, you know, I think you were saying that when you were at GE, you, you know, there was a fraud and you had to investigate it. And there was another fraud and you, and you had, had, had to investigate it. And that was maybe like what planted the seed for the, you know, this, this compliance tree that you, you are now. What yeah. was it about those initial investigations that really kind of piqued your interest or that made you feel like, oh, this is kind of a cool thing that I want to spend some more time on? Was it just happenstance? Was it something that you felt like you were good at? Did someone see it in you? What, what, what was that like? I did feel like I was good at, because if you think the, the frauds I was dealing with, it's, it's following the money. So it's looking back and you're trying to follow the money. You're doing the email searches. You're, you're interviewing employees, things like that. So it was a, it's a mystery you're trying to solve. You're trying to link things and put things together. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's the good and the bad when you're able to substantiate it. You're able to, to identify the misconduct. But then obviously, you know, somebody did something wrong. So we've right. got to make action against them. Uh, but the other thing, too, is also after it gets completed, what are the lessons learned? What can you do to try to improve it? And that brings in a little bit of like the, I would say, the GE mentality about what can we do to improve our processes as well. Right. So when you first got over, where did you go after there, after uh, GE? I went to Marsh McCullen. Marsh McCullen. In New York City. Yep. Yeah. And so um, when you were in GE, were you, were you in Chicago? I was in New York. Or I was in Connecticut. You were in Connecticut. Okay, gotcha. Um, okay, so then you went to Marsh, Marsh McCullen, and there you were doing what? Yeah, I was a I was a, a senior compliance manager. What we did some work around any money laundering. Also helped them go through their first formal risk assessment, things like that. I learned a tremendous amount. It was a it's a really great company as well. Too, we created a, a for them a, a updated formal code of conduct. Created a movie that actually went along with it. So it was a really it was a really wonderful experience, and they're doing great now as well, too. What was that movie all about? It was a movie, actually, of the building and the making of the code. So it was, I don't know if it's still out there. It was, it was really a pretty fun experience. One of the nice things about working and living in New York City is you have all kinds of, I would say, 
creative people like that who can come at a pretty reasonable cost that you can hire and come build and break, create a movie for us. And we took advantage of it. It was a, it was a really neat experience. So when was that? Was that like around 2008? Um, let's see, about 2000. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Between so, 2006 and 11, I was there. Got it. So you rode the financial crash down there. You're kind of building up this program with some folks that you had worked with, I think, over at GE. Um, yep. Where was that pro? And I think you said that um, you guys were really kind of standing up a program for the first time. So you did a first risk assessment, you did a code of conduct overhaul this movie. Talk to us about, I mean, those are some major pillars of an ethics and compliance program. Talk to us about some some of the lessons that you learned from that experience, which I'm sure informed your 3M time. Yeah, um, you know, I think they were um, they were they were a company made up. They were an operating company made up of four separate businesses that come together. So it's similar to what you have at 3M as well. Mm-hmm. Too, we have different business groups. So I think it's the power of what you can do from the center and how you try to operationalize things and create things uh, consistency across a global scale as well, too. I mean, we, we did do a, I would say, one of their first formal risk assessments. We did them consistently everywhere throughout, created the same type of templates mm-hmm. on how you're measuring, you know, the frequency, the impact, things of that nature as well, too. Um, you know, the other thing, it's just, it's the influencing people. How do you get people to buy into this and to be a participant in it? It's the... You know, it's what's the value, what's that, what's in it for them as well, too. Yeah. Um, so at that time, were you kind of thinking down the road? I mean, you seem like a, like an ambitious guy. You seem like a guy who's thinking about the next move and stuff. What kind of next move when you were there in New York, were you thinking that, that what you were doing might lead to? And how did that change, you know, in terms of how you landed at 3M? Um, I, was enjo- I was very fortunate. I was enjoying who I was working with. I had great access and accessibility to our chief compliance officer. So I learned a great deal from that, got exposure to the very most senior level employees within the company. Mm -hmm. So I love the experience. Really what happened is, is that, uh, you know, it's one of those things where your, your door is always open. 3M had, they were looking to build and enhance their program. There was an opportunity available for me really to take a true leadership role of a particular pillar within the compliance function. Um, so I just, I saw that as a unique opportunity. Yeah. Um, at the time it was a bit of a risk because I had met my wife. She was a New Yorker living from that area and I was pulling her out and bringing her to Minnesota. Uh-huh. As I mentioned, I've been a lot more trans transient. I was used to moving around. You know, I met her while I was working at GE in the Connecticut area. So th- this was far greater risk. I'm going to pull this poor woman who's got all her family, her friends, college, she re- and pull her over to the Midwest, but it's been a really good experience for us and our family. Yeah, a lot more mosquitoes and a lot more casseroles in uh, Minnesota, huh? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's talk about culture because, you know, this is what I think is our big strategic lever. This is the thing that I think we can um, influence uh, more than anything else. Um, When did that light bulb turn on for you that like the name of the game is actual culture and employee behavior and how, and talk a little bit about how the sort of focus or the purview of the ethics and compliance program, where you're at now has changed over the, over the last 10 years. Wow. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think everything comes down to like the data because I think you want to start with a good, I think in general, 
culture really drives everything. And one thing I do like is since I've been at 3M, they've had different iterations of what I would say is their, their foundations. We talk about now we've got these cultural elements and unwavering integrity is one of them. I think I've been fortunate that we've had that. And they presented our business models in different fashions to the external market. But one thing they've always emphasized is you know, it could be placed at the bottom, but you, I say, well, that's the foundation mm -hmm. in order for everything to build and operate and us to, to deliver what we expect to the market, we need to have this. And one of them is our cultural element of unwavering integrity. So I think um, the business recognizes that. And I think that's important because then that's almost, they've already planted the seed. When somebody joins 3M, you're going to get orientated. Here's our business models. Here's our cultural elements. One of them is unwavering integrity. So they're getting introduced to it. And for me, that's the that's the start of things, because, you know, as we all know, I want to see the calls to our hotline go up as much as possible, mm -hmm. because I know there are things that are happening and are the greatest control we have is our three Emmers. Um, they, they can inform me early enough. They can be part of the solution. We can help fix things. So that's what I see is by telling people what we can tell them unwavering integrity is one of our cultural elements. What my job is to help that help operationalize that for them. What does this mean for you? You know, there's if you're in the gray zone, but you know, you're not alone. You can mm -hmm. call and ask for help. There's many different avenues. So we use all kinds of different, I would say, communication tactic, tactics and techniques to try to influence people, inform them what that means and where to go to. But I think really culture is key to a compliance because that helps, you know, you're the most I think the most valuable asset control you have are your employees. Totally. If they're gonna do the right things, totally. that's great. And if they see something that's wrong, my gosh, you want them to think about it and say, this isn't right. I got to call somebody for help and I want them to call me. So, yeah. And it's all based on trust, frankly, right? Yeah. If you can establish that foothold of trust or that foundation of trust, then they can actually, you know, what's, what's the word? They can activate these risk sensors that you can influence by your training and by what you're talking about and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I recently kind of, um, I think I've underestimated that piece and I've underestimated the amount of baggage that people bring into a workplace because there's a lot of companies that don't have the kind of unwavering integrity commitment that your company has that people come from. And over the great resignation, there's a bunch of like, it's all getting mixed up. You know what I'm saying? People are leaving, people are coming. And, you know, I would presume that, you know, a company like yours maybe has hit relatively less than, you know, others because of, you know, your, you know, your culture and things like that. But I don't think anyone's been sort of unscathed by this whole thing. And so as you think about, you know, new people coming in into the workforce and that, you know, that just presents like such a risk. And I don't know if we've seen the implications of those, of all that, like, all that move, all that movement. How have you started to think about that? Have you seen some early signs of what I'm talking about in the data? And how have you, you know, how, how do you think we sort of like tackle that? Yeah, I, I would say um, when we when we do acquisitions, sometimes what we'll see is those new people don't complete their training. They don't have the same rigor around training. It doesn't take long for them to understand, but that's usually a, a bit of an initial signal because I can separate out from our data who's an acquisition employee and not. You can we put a code so we can know. So we can see that. And that's, sometimes you'll see that example like, oh, you know, it, but for them, a lot of it is just them getting orientated around, hey, here's our expectations. And it helps filter it down. I think during the pandemic, what we've seen more than anything else is I think people struggle with the work environment. Yeah. As you can see today, I'm working remotely from home. Mm -hmm. I go, we've gone back to the office. 
but our office space will never be the same. I probably work in the office three days a week on average, sometimes more. Uh, I think the biggest challenge has been the remote work environment. And then some people have really struggled working remotely. And then we've seen more cases of what we call respectful workplace. And it's not like uh, harassment, discrimination, or retaliation. It's more like just the lack of civility with each other. Ah. So, because, you know, because not everybody goes on video, some people will not. Um, and, you know, you could, there's all kinds of different, you know, external things going on in the environment that could create an enhanced tension. But if you just think about it, we used to go to a, a, a meeting, you would sit around a conference room, you get done, you, you and your colleague talk about something, you may misunderstand something, you could check their tone, you can carry on your discussion at the end of the meeting, and you, you, you understand each other. Now right. it's like you don't understand them. It's like, boom, you hit the exit button and it's done. It's very abrupt now. So I think we've seen more of a struggle with that, the respectful workplace, people using more social media. They're mm -hmm. saying things that are not exactly, <laughs> they're not anonymous and you can see them. It's like, oh gosh, we've got to continue to be nice to each other. And that's what we're trying to emphasize is what we like to say at 3M is we're a culture of innovation and how you bring innovation to anything is you're questioning each other. And we should be able to question each other to bring the best out in each other, but you wanna make sure you can do it in a professional manner. And you know you should encourage people to be open in a discussion and challenge each other. So, but that's what I think we've seen is a little bit more increase in that stuff during the pandemic. Yeah, and you know, when you're face-to-face, and you can, there's so much more communication that you can sort of key off of, right? Tone, inflection, body language, all those kinds of things. And as you get sort of further and further apart on Zoom, Zoom, no camera, Slack messages or, or whatever, there's so much less sort of data to like analyze. You end up, and we all have like a, neg a negativity bias, you end up starting to fill things in uh, with assumptions and, you know, negative intent and stuff like that. I agree. I agree. You you miss that that social interactions. It's sort of interesting going. We uh, we started working remotely at 3M in March 17th of 2020, and we're we have officially gone back. But it's we, we're we're allowing employees to make the decision because we've been able to demonstrate we can work uh, effectively at home and remotely. And it's just nice when you see people. <laughs> you know, you haven't seen totally. them in two years. Totally. Yeah. So um, we're getting toward the end here. Um, I love this question. I ask, every, I ask it to everybody. If you can go back in time um, to a young Michael, what advice would you give him? What advice do you wish you had? What light bulb moment do you, you know, think, man, if I had that a little bit earlier, I would, I would have really magnified my impact even more. You know, it's a great question. It's interesting. I, uh, I spoke to a class yesterday at Case Western in um, law school cool. in Ohio. Yeah. And um, I look back at my career and all the different, I would say, different things I've done. I've enjoyed the choices I've made. But I think the things that, um, I, and I look back and I call them like lessons in my career. Some of the things is always what I call a growth mindset. Always continue to have a thirst for learning things. Accept the challenges. Take on bigger challenges. Because mm -hmm. that's where you learn the most is when, when you have a challenge in front of you. Um, and then, um, you know, what has helped me out in my career has been a few mentors and I've been able to take advantage of them as well too. But a lot of that is driven by, you know, everybody wants to build up a network. Your networks work best when you deliver results. So that's the thing. Ultimately, that's what happened to me is I happened to work for some people that helped me out, but yet I delivered right. and they thought of me when there were other opportunities. So I think those were um, 
yeah, those are a few items. Well, man, I wish we had 90 minutes because uh, there's a bunch of stuff we didn't even get to get to, uh, how, how you've built your team, how you've um, you know chosen what you guys work on, how you've been able to um, express ROI, the ROI, ROI argument to leadership and stuff like that. So uh, we should definitely stay connected. But I just appreciate you so much coming on, uh, the ethics experts. Where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you? And uh... I, I would say LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, Michael Duran, D-U-R-E-N. You can find me there. Very good. Right. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Ethics Experts. Until next time. Take care. It's been a pleasure.